You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Jewish Matters podcast. Tonight, in our extraordinary Jewish personalities, we'll be speaking about Elie Wiesel, the voice of justice. And Elie Wiesel is really a unique personality. You really cannot compare him to anyone in the world. He saw his role as giving testimony to the Holocaust and to speak out for present and future injustices and Holocausts. And he was perhaps, one could argue, the most well-known Jew in the world in the late 20th, early 21st century. And he became recognized as the voice of morality, the world's conscience, if you will. He received the Nobel Peace Prize. He was given over 19 honorary doctorates. But really, it's not about the awards. It's about his incredible voice, author, journalist, and his ability to speak about the reality of the human condition and at the same time, the larger questions that face humanity and the individual. I myself had the privilege of being around him a lot. He was a fellow congregant at Fifth Avenue Synagogue, where we ran outreach programs in Manhattan. And just being around his presence was an experience. His dignity, his presence, his... Uh, a type of heavy pathos, but not overly heavy. And because he was a congregant there, I really understood that he didn't want to be the figure in the public limelight. And there's only once that he ever spoke at the synagogue. He would like to read the Haftarah and had a beautiful voice. And because of his public persona. I tried not to bug him too much. We did have some conversations, even about some of his books, but really I tried to let him be. And in some ways, um, the synagogue was one of the only probably public fora where he could be himself and a private citizen. And his funeral was uh, a private uh, funeral in the synagogue. Let's talk about Ellie's life. He grew up in Sigurd, uh, which was Hungary at the time. And he grew up in a Hasidic home with a Hasidic upbringing. And he describes All Rivers Run to the Sea in his autobiography, how he came from a deeply religious home. Uh, his, uh, he went to Cheder, he studied Torah, and in his teens, in his early teens, he started with a group of three and a teacher to study the Kabbalah. And we see his dreaming side, his imaginative side, almost you could say his poetic side, and all his, so his otherworldly side. And, but all of that, of course, was to come crashing down with the Holocaust. When the Holocaust hit Hungary relatively late, in 44, and his family was deported 
to Auschwitz. He was separated uh, from his mother and sisters and was with his father in the camps. His time in the camps, he, uh, he tells us that he continued to pray. They would form minyanim as they went each day. He can even continue to study Torah, finding a study partner of a personality who was a Rosh Yeshiva, who was the head of Yeshiva, and who knew Talmud by heart and would recite the passages, and Eli would repeat them as they were working together. And of course, this is significant because he does address and uh, grapple with the theology of where was God in the Holocaust, and we will talk about that and what he shares about that. But what he said is that in the camps, we didn't have time to think about it. We continued praying, we continued studying, and he says that's probably as much as anything what kept me alive. Uh, near the end of the war, they heard the Russians approaching. He had a bad knee and he had to be put in the infirmary. He and his father were debating whether to stay there as the Germans were evacuating. And being afraid that they would be killed, they evacuated. They were put on a death march to Buchwald. And his father died in the process. Um, and he talks about how his father was lying ill and he was driven out of the barracks. And he couldn't even cry, he said, knowing his father was going to die. Cry, crying would come later, would come with freedom. And he says, years later, each time he thinks of his father, thinks of that moment, he gets knots in his chest. And he says, you can be orphaned more than once. He describes, or fictionally describes, his ordeal in the book Night, which uh, became perhaps his most famous book and was his first book to be written. And we'll talk about that in context. After his father died, he describes no longer having a will to live, but somehow he did live. And uh, of course, almost all Holocaust survivors will tell you all of the miracle stories, the close brushes with death, and how close they came. My family uh, fled Austria. My mother was on a kinder transport, and they also have their share of stories. And of course, everyone comes out of it with a different outlook on God, on religion, on life. And the main teaching that Ellie gives is that he doesn't judge anyone. You can't judge anyone having gone through what they went through. He says when they were liberated, when the Russians finally did come, uh, sorry, when the Americans came, he said they were not happy. They could not rejoice. Maybe because they were so broken, maybe because there were too many that they mourned in order to celebrate victory. And years later, he asked a Russian general why they didn't come earlier. They heard for weeks the Russians bombing. And another theme which he addresses straight on, as he does all of them, is that he said that liberating the camps was simply not a priority. 
or even a goal for the Allies. They were there to win the war, and that was it. That was simply it. And later on, when Jews would be put in DP camps, deported person camps after the war with nowhere to go. So he says, during the war, they had their war to fight. During the war, maybe they didn't realize. During the war, maybe they had other reasons. He said, but after the war, what happened to the displaced persons in the camps? Uh, of course, they weren't killing camps, but they were barbed wire camps, sometimes with very poor conditions, he said. That we cannot excuse. And more on his moral message about this later. In the aftermath of the war, um, he was 15, 16 years old, relatively older, um, but still an orphan child. And de Gaulle heard about the 400 Jewish orphans and invited them to come to France. And England would not allow them to go to Palestine. That was the only option. And he said it was a column of old men's faces marching towards the train to be taken to Paris. And they were there placed in an orphanage. And he has very warm uh, memories of the special people who gave their lives to help take care of these children. There are other formative events that happened to him, uh, most notably his teacher of that time, whose name was Shoshani, who was a very strange, uh, eccentric, disheveled genius who knew the entire Torah back and forward, knew all of secular knowledge. And there are many stories of other known intellectuals like Emmanuel Levinas, the great French Jewish philosopher who studied with him, uh, people in Israel, South America. He was a, uh, I wouldn't say a vagabond, he was a, uh, he wandered and never settled in any one place, but he did spend two years teaching uh, Elie Wiesel every day. And Wiesel, Wiesel says that without Shoshani, he would not have become who he is. He want, no, would not, uh, thank you, uh, Rabbi Sessler, for having uh, spoken to me about Shoshani. I read up on it and fascinating, um, fascinating personality who also interacted uh, with the Lubavitch Rebbe. And uh, Elie Wiesel was in Paris after the Rebbe, but later in New York, he would become close to the Lubavitch Rebbe as well and have theological discussions about the Holocaust, but more about that later. He also had a French tutor, François, who introduced him to the language and literature of France and set him on his course towards writing and his love of literature. And he would go on to become a professor at Boston University for many decades. He does tell us about he struggled with depression and there were even moments where he contemplated suicide when he was, had left the orphanage, was alone in his room in Paris with great loneliness, and even on the boat going to Israel, right, after independence. He even at that moment of uh, realizing his dream of seeing the Holy Land, he felt lonely and lost and uh, contemplated jumping overboard. And once again described how someone walked up to him, started schmoozing him up for three hours, and probably saved his life. He did have some consolations. His sisters survived. One of them who 
lived in Paris, the other one in a DP camp in Germany. And of course, that was a great uh, bomb for him. And he recounts how even at this young age, he said, someday I knew it would be my duty to testify. And the deported person's camps where his sister lives, he said, would be part of that testimony. He became a journalist, and that's how he found employment, for some 10 years, 1946 to 1956. And he started uh, being a journalist for a paper put out by the Irgun, by the Jewish Liberation Movement, uh, later became the Herut Party, and then Likud. And uh, he wrote for them in Paris and received a small pay, went to Israel a few years after independence, and got a job with a different paper as well. And he felt like he was working for the cause of helping Israel achieve its independence. And after independence, like many of his uh, peers in Paris of the survivor, young adults, he went to the Jewish agency office to sign up to fight for the Jewish people. And they looked at him, gave him an exam and said, you are not physically uh, in any shape to be fighting. And that's the toll that the camps had taken upon him. So he used his pen instead. Some 10 years later, in the mid-50s, he would meet uh, Mauriac, a French writer, and start to write about his experiences. He'd been kept keeping diaries and his own writings. But in 1955, he decided to begin to write his experiences. And in one of his uh, interviews, he says that he decided, I'm waiting 10 years before I tell my story. Why 10 years? said it's a biblical number, a number of biblical proportions. And also, uh, myself having been a student of history, you know, today you say that any history that's less than 50 years old is not history, it's current events. And he understood the need for distance and maybe understood that the world wasn't ready to hear it. And this is very sad that when he went to Israel, he saw that the survivors were looked down upon. They were almost sneered at. And the common outlook on survivors at the time was that why had they gone passively to their deaths? And they were kind of looked on as nebuchs. And uh, we'll talk about how Ellie changed that outlook. Eventually, Knight would go on to sell 10 million copies. He would go on to write 54 books. He published mostly, almost uh, all of it in French. And it would be his wife, Marion, who would do his translations into English. And um, in 2005, Oprah Winfrey made Knight a selection on her book club. And um, of course, it's probably his most famous book and so telling that it was his first. In 1955, he moved to New York. And as I mentioned, he had a relationship with the Lubavitch Rebbe. And when he would come to the Rebbe, the Rebbe said, you need to get married. And in 1969, he did. And uh, in 1976, he became a professor at Boston University. From 1978 to 1986, he served as the head of the Presidential Commission on the Holocaust. 
and would be involved in, and could be credited really for bringing about the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. And there are some who will turn and say, well, he spoke too much about the Holocaust. He focused too much on the killing of Jews. Weren't there other peoples who died in the Holocaust? And by the way, the museum does recognize that. But his powerful line was that it's true, not all victims were Jews, but all Jews were victims. Okay? Not all victims were Jews, but all Jews were victims. He spoke out throughout the years about Israel. He was a staunch defender of Israel and of Jews throughout the world. He spoke about and was active in helping the plight of Soviet Jewry and speaking out as a public figure, Ethiopian Jews, and then being brought to Israel, and warning about the Iranian nuclear ambitions. And in 2014, when Bibi came to Washington to speak in Congress, right around the time of AIPAC, I went to a talk he gave uh, speaking out against Iran, against Iran's nuclear ambitions. He was a crusader of the truth and would speak his mind even if it ruffled feathers, even if it went against the grain or the party lines. And he did speak out often about world issues of injustice and of uh, oppression. He spoke out against apartheid in South Africa in the 60s and 70s, spoke about starvation in Biafra and Africa in the 70s, Bosnian victims of genocide in the former Yugoslavia in the 90s, Nicaragua in the 2000s, the decimation of the Kurds, the killings in Darfur in, in Sudan, the Tamils in Sri Lanka, and many, many other causes. He would speak out and call for the remembrance of the Armenian genocide in 1908, which still hasn't been recognized by the American government properly. And uh, because of his voice of truth, in 1986 he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for speaking about, again, out against violence, repression, and racism throughout the world. And at his speech there he said, silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Sometimes we must interfere. When human lives are endangered, when human dignity is in jeopardy, national borders and sensitivities become irrelevant. And, of course, and he was also famously to have said that it's not just those who perpetrated the acts, but those who stood about silently, who uh, helped bring about the Holocaust and other oppressions. He would be awarded the Congressional Gold Medal and, um, but every time he emphasized that it wasn't about the honors, but really he used the platform in order to be able to speak out and to be almost the moral conscience of the world. In, uh, in the mid-2015, 20, 20, he accompanied Ofer Winfrey in Auschwitz and then President Obama and Angela Merkel, who toured Buchenwald. He was knighted by Queen Victoria. And all of this helped bring the Holocaust and helped keep the Holocaust in the forefront of the world's consciousness. And not just for the Jewish people, as we said, but for the sake of the world. 
In 2019, he visited Hungary and was given the Great Cross Award, but he renounced the award in 2012. He gave it back to them because he felt that Hungary would not take enough responsibility for their role in the Holocaust and for their active deportation and rounding up of Jews. And as I mentioned before, he was a staunch supporter of Israel. More recently in 2014, he condemned Hamas's use of children as human shields and wanted to take an ad out, a full page ad to that effect. The Times refused it saying, the opinion being expressed is too strong and too forcefully made and will cause concern amongst a significant number of Times readers. I'll let those words speak for themselves. As I mentioned in 2015, he spoke out against the Iran nuclear program in DC and he supported an undivided Jerusalem. And the only talk I heard him give at the synagogue where we both went was uh, on Yom Yerushalayim on Jerusalem day. And he's, his words about Jerusalem are, Jerusalem is above politics. It is mentioned more than 600 times in scripture and not a single time in the Quran. It belongs to the Jewish people and it is much more than a city. Now, Ali Wiesel's theology, Ali Wiesel's struggling with God in Auschwitz. And he was a controversial figure in the Jewish religious world because in his earlier years, he expressed his anger at the Almighty. He questioned, where were you, God, in Auschwitz? In a very strong language. And my own understanding is that uh, Nachmanis himself points out how some of the Jewish prophets also spoke out against God or spoke out in face of God. Abraham arguing for the people of Sodom. Jeremiah arguing, calling out for the Jewish people's pain at the destruction of Jerusalem. And more recently, the Berdachev Rebbe, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak Berdachev, who would get up on Yom Kippur with two books and he said, God, here's all we did wrong, but here's all you dished out to us. Let's call it quits. This was the voice of Eli Wiesel. And there are those who said he was an agnostic. But as we will see, and at the end I will read you what I believe is the most powerful writing piece of Elie Wiesel, his letter on the High Holidays in 1997. And from that I think it's clear that he was not an agnostic. He just wanted to know where was God. And he speaks often about God's hiddenness in the camps. He says emphatically, no one can know the reason for the Holocaust and one shouldn't even try to go to that place. But he did emphasize and talk about the idea that the Almighty suffers with us, with the Jewish people, and that God goes into exile with us, but that it's also God who brought the disaster upon the Jewish people. How can both things exist at the same time? In a sense, they can't. But this was the greatness of Elie Wiesel. He was able to live with contradiction. He was able to live with opposites. 
He was able to live with paradoxes and not resolve them. And those who had a lot of interaction, his students say how he would always be asking the questions and a question would engender another question. And those questions didn't have to be asked, had to be answered, excuse me, but they had to be asked. So, um, back to our discussion of the survivors. So, we said before, and Eli Wazel noted this, how the survivors were looked down upon, even in Israel when they arrived after the independence of the country. They were taunted at times by children. Uh, they were... They, uh, and the question was, why did they go silently to their deaths? And since then, the attitudes and the outlook and the understanding have changed. And the systematic dehumanization uh, of Jews and non-Jews was carefully orchestrated by the Germans to render them powerless. And, but what Elie Wiesel did is he showed, first of all, some of the spiritual heroism of the survivors. And he talks about how what saved him was helping take care of his father, and what saved his father was helping take care of him. And he showed the empathy for those suffering. He showed the theological struggles, the God struggles within them. And he showed how even though the Germans tried to dehumanize us, we still rose above it. And that was his larger experience. Now, what about the capos, the Jewish police, who sometimes were brutal against other Jews? What about the Judenrat, the Jewish leadership in the ghettos, which the Nazis purposefully placed there to have them do the selections? He said there were problems, but I will not judge them. He said that... Ultimately, it was the Germans who put them in these positions. And it's not that he's excusing them, and it's not that he's judging them. But he always says that he focused on the victims, not on the criminals. He focused on the victims and not on the criminals. After the war, he was approached by two brothers, two lawyers, who said 40 years later, their father had identified the Jewish capo, the Jewish policeman, who almost beat him to death for really no reason. And he sat down with them for hours. Are you sure it's him? How do you know? Do you really want to bring justice on him 40 years later and destroy him? And they said, they told Wiesel, he knew this person from the synagogue. Wiesel would not name him in his autobiography in his memoirs. And he said, once again, I focused on the victims, not on the criminals. And he could live with these contradictions. His attitude towards Germany and towards the Germans. He did go once in the 50s into Germany, but he avoided it and really only went back, he said. He said he went once, and he saw that he was going to start judging this German is older. Where was he? What was he doing during the war? And he said, I didn't want to be into that position to have to judge and not know 
especially. And so he didn't go back for many decades. But his view is that he doesn't believe in collective responsibility. The younger generation is a new generation. And some of them who were his students, some German uh, children of Nazis, one who found out that his father had been a Nazi, Ali Wiesel said, I sat with him for three hours and I realized how painful it was for them. He said, we, not to compare, but I had my pain of going through the Holocaust and being the victim. And they had the pain of being the child of the tormentor, of the perpetrator of that horror. And he felt for them and gave time to these young Germans who struggled with it. And later he would go back to Germany. And when he went and spoke in the Reichstag, when they reopened the building uh, and reconvened the German government there, I guess this was after the fall of the Iron Curtain, he invited Brandt, the German prime minister, to come to Israel. And he suggested to him that he offer an apology. And Brandt did. He came to Israel. He came to the Knesset and apologized on behalf of the German people. Truly an act of heroism. In the 1950s, when there were big debates over the reparations that Germany was to give Israel, he actually was hired as a translator to be involved in those talks. And after the talks started up, he recused himself. He quit the job even though he desperately needed the money because he couldn't countenance hearing uh, that Israel would take the money and was afraid that the Germans were, in a sense, be given a pass and feel like they were buying us off uh, by giving reparations. The Israeli government did accept the reparations in the end, and, uh, but Elie Wiesel was not for it. And he said that his focus on the victims and not the criminals is what prevented him, why he never could become a Nazi hunter. His role was to write the voice of the survivors. And he always talked about being severely aware of the limitation of words, how words cannot truly really express the horror and the events and the unimaginable that he lived through. But once again, the man of paradoxes, even though words cannot describe it, he still put them down as best he could, always feeling he had done an insufficient job at being able to express himself. And he talked much about the power of words, power of words to hurt people, the power of words to lift up, and yet always felt insufficient in his words. And he said, perhaps coming from his Kabbalistic teachings, ultimately, don't say too much because the secret of truth lies in silence. And like to end by reading you a prayer for the days of awe in the New York Times. This appeared in October 1997. And as I said before, Elie Wiesel, uh, after the war, was a voice of confronting God, a voice of disbelief before God, a voice of questioning God's absence in the Holocaust. And this piece, I believe, was the turning point. 
and I'll let Eliezer's words speak for themselves. Master of the universe, let us make up. It is time. How long can we go on being angry? More than 50 years have passed since the nightmare was lifted. Oh, they do not forgive the killers and their accomplices. Nor should they. Nor should you, master of the universe. But they no longer look at every passerby with suspicion, nor do they see a dagger in every hand. Does this mean that the wounds in their souls have healed? They will never heal. As long as the spark of the flames of Auschwitz and Treblinka glows in their memory, so long will my joy be incomplete. What about my faith in you, master of the universe? Now I realize I never lost it. Not even over there, during the darkest hours of my life. I don't know why I kept on whispering my daily prayers and those one reserves for the Sabbath and for the holidays. But I did recite them, often with my father and on Rosh Hashanah Eve, with hundreds of inmates at Auschwitz. Was it because the prayers remained a link to the vanished world of my childhood? But my faith was no longer pure. How could it be? It was filled with anguish rather than fervor, with perplexity more than piety. In the kingdom of the eternal night, on the days of awe, which are the days of judgment, my traditional prayers were directed to you as well as against you, master of the universe. What hurt me more, your absence or your silence? In my testimony, I've written harsh words, burning words about your role in our tragedy. I would not repeat them today, but I felt them then. I felt them in every cell of my being. Why did you allow, if not enable the killer, day after day, night after night, to torment, kill, and annihilate tens of thousands of Jewish children? Why were they abandoned by your creator, by your creation? These thoughts were in no way destined to diminish the guilt of the guilty. Their established culpability is irrelevant to my problem with you, master of the universe. In my childhood, I did not expect much from human beings, but I expected everything from you. Where were you, God of kindness, in Auschwitz? What was going on in heaven at the celestial tribunal? While your children were marked for humiliation, isolation, and death, only because they were Jewish. These questions have been haunting me for more than five decades. You have vocal defenders, you know. Many theological answers were given to me, such as, God is God. He alone knows what he is doing. One has no right to question him or his ways. Or, Auschwitz was a punishment for European Jewry's sins of assimilation. And or, Zionism. And, isn't Israel the solution? Without Auschwitz, there would have been no Israel. I reject all these answers. 
Auschwitz must and will forever remain a question mark only. It can be conceived neither with God nor without God. At one point, I began wondering whether I was not unfair to you. After all, Auschwitz was not something that came down ready-made from heaven. It was conceived by men, impl implemented by men, staffed by men, and their aim was to destroy not only us, but you as well. Ought we not to think of your pain too? Watching your children suffer at the hands of your other children, haven't you also suffered? As we Jews now enter the high holidays again, preparing ourselves to pray for a year of peace and happiness for our people and all people, let us make up master of the universe. In spite of everything that happened, yes, in spite, let us make up for the child in me. It is unbearable to be divorced from you so long. powerful words of Elie Wiesel. Thank you for joining us. Have a good evening. Join us next week on our Wednesday night Jewish, Extraordinary Jewish Personalities and Sunday night for Jewish Spirituality. Have a good evening.